0: This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Jordan Pearlson. Jordan grew up in the Philly area, spent 12 years on the New York scene where he played with fantastic artists across many genres, from Kenny Warner to Becca Stevens to Modest Yahoo, and then relocated to Nashville in 2016. His incorporation into the Nashville scene has been gradual, at first because he was still touring quite a bit with New York-based artists, then because of the pandemic. But recently he's been hitting his stride and finding his place there, collaborating with fellow recent Nashville transplants Jeff Coffin and Kirk Fletcher, and recording and teaching in his home studio. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer, and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at WorkingDrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. Our latest Patreon content features me. There's a new video there of me outlining a great warm-up routine I've been doing for close to 10 years now. There's so much out there that is billed as a warm-up when it's in fact more of a workout or a chop builder or something you should do after you actually warm up. So what's in that video is designed to just wake up your hands and arms if they're totally cold and get them ready for the higher demands of actual drumming. Also great stuff on there from Ash Stone, Don Perry, Joe Bergamini, Steven Chopek, and Chuck Palmer talking about specific songs they've tracked drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of those recording processes. You can get access to this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month. So check that out. We'd really appreciate your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. Now it's my turn. So you're and all you want to do
1: is blame me every time you lose.
0: So, as you'll hear, I've been an admirer of Jordan's for quite a while, but I wasn't aware that he'd moved to Nashville until recently. I wanted to talk to him because I think he's a great example of how the Nashville scene has been attracting and utilizing a different kind of drummer over the last few years. So here we go. Hope you dig. Jordan Pearlson. Been on my radar for longer than you might think um, because from 2003 to 2010, I lived in Kansas City, and during my time there, I I got to play a few times with uh, Ben Markley. Do you remember him?
1: Fucking love Ben Markley. <laughs> sh- cursed already. Sorry, I love Ben Barkley. Yeah, that guy, man.
0: Me too. Me too. Um, yeah, he was, you know, just like sending me the the tracks that you guys had recorded to to help me learn those tunes, and I was like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> he was <laughs> oh, like, man, that's thanks. Jordan Pearlson in New York. Um, so yeah, it's been like since then that I've I've kind of um followed you a bit here and there. Um. And you know, I didn't know that you were in Nashville until recently, um, when you popped up on. Uh, it was that Kirk Fletcher gig with Ty Bailey, who's a great friend of mine. Oh, cool! Um, yeah,
1: that was just last week.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I like I, I saw that. Mm-hmm. I was like, "What? Well, Perlson's in Nashville? When did that happen? Why?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's uh, it's it's been almost six years. Coming up on my six year anniversary oh, cool. of being in nashville but you know i the, what i always kind of say to myself anyway is like i spent the first three years on the road with mostly like lots of new york folks that i was still and, and am still involved with and then the next two years in co- you know was covid right and uh and then this last you know nine months has been like the murky weird like are we out of covid or are we not out of covid so like i i even though it's like been a calendar sick almost six years it really hasn't felt like i've been here that long
0: yeah yeah you know? wow so like uh, there's there's a lot to unpack there um why uh why did you move to nashville in the first place like if you were still touring with kind of these new york-based artists who we'll talk about um but mm-hmm. what like why the move to nashville
1: New York's a tough place to live, you know. <laughs> <Like> I've heard. <laughs> whether whether, you know, I think whether you're like a like one of my really good friends there is a she's a book, she was a book editor and now she's like an like a she works for a giant podcast company and like production company, but like I used to like envy her because like she would just get on the train every morning and read a book or listen to a podcast or listen to music and like not, and like bring her purse, you know? And I was like, so you just get on the train without 50 pounds of cymbals and a snare drum and like a, a maybe an SPDS pad and like whatever else. crazy stuff we need to like bring with us. And that's like, and you go to one place and you stay there for eight hours and then you, maybe you stop for dinner or maybe you just come home and that's like your day as opposed to like, I leave the house at 8 a.m. for my first thing. And then I, it's not worth it to me to come all the way home till my, for my second. So I go and kill time till my second thing all the while, like hauling around all my crap. And, you know, so like a very typical day would be like, you know, whatever, 8 a.m. till, one in the morning, you know, hauling all that stuff around and you just never go home. Right. And, you know, from like, when you're like 24, that's amazing. Like if you can, if you can have like 25 days in a row like that, it's success. Like that's a measure of success, (laughs) you know, as like a a 20, as a 20 something drummer in New York, like, you know what, you're not really worried about how much you're getting paid to do it. You're just like, I'm busy. This is successful. This is what success looks like. Yep. And then, you know, you grow up a little bit, you have, back surgery, you have other things, you know, you have like a partner or a a, a spouse to consider and you're like, okay, things are a little different now. I can't, you know, I like, you know, expenses versus income are important, are more important now. And my health is really important to me. And not that that stuff wasn't important, it just becomes heightened as you get older. Right. And, uh, and gigs weren't, you know, paying any better. As time went on. So my wife and at the time and I were talking about, you know, like kind of what's next. And I kind of always knew as much as I loved New York and I had a lot of I made a lot of amazing music there and a ton of amazing friends. And and I still there's still like very much family to me. I was like, I'm not going to be here forever. Yeah. Like I grew, I grew up in the suburbs. And I think like that's like some version of that will probably be, you know, well, you know, I was like, barring any tragedies, I'm not going to die here. You know, it was kind of what I always knew. Yeah. Yeah. And so we started talking about leaving and I was like, okay, I've got, you know, two options. Either I can move to another music city, which is, you know, obviously just like Atlanta, Nashville, New York, or uh, LA and, and Austin. And, LA is a lateral move, so we took that right, right, a lateral move economically, so we took that off the table. Right,
0: and a lateral, a lateral move in terms of just pain in the ass.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's a, it's like, it's a different kind of pain in the ass, but, you know, but totally. And, all, all and then I was like, oh, so those are our options. If I, if I want to do another music city or I can also move, we can also move to somewhere that's just inexpensive and awesome to live like Durham, North Carolina, which my I dad, always
0: just had a, th- my dad lives there. I love that place. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Durham's just like the, like, all like every time I'd stop there on the road or see friends or something, I was like, man, there's something very special about this little pocket of the, of the country. Yep. And, uh, and I kind of, and, you know, I decided at least for myself, I was like, I think I'm just barely young enough i was in my mid-30s at the time i was like i can i still have the energy and the like the desire to like start over in a music city if i if i waited another few years i don't know if i'd have it in me and i just moved to the the durham or whatever it is and hope that all my touring continued and and so we moved here and like i said i was on the road a lot with new york folks and then i started playing with adrian baloo who who is based in Nashville, but not a Nashville person. He's right. just like li- lived here for 30 years, but like doesn't, he doesn't really involve himself in the scene here. So it wasn't, that wasn't much of a, you know, connector gig to like other Nashville based stuff. So I kind of considered not, don't really consider that a Nashville based gig. Right. And, uh, and then it was very, very busy with, with Adrian and Beck Steven and Charlie Hunter and people like that right up until the pan like literally like minutes before the pandemic. And then, nothing like
0: everybody else yeah yeah um so it's just now that um i would imagine you're kind of going about the business of matriculating into the nashville scene
1: yeah i I mean i was doing it lightly in here and like i made a couple really key connections kind of early on which were really great that, that didn't necessarily lead to lots of stuff right away but i feel like they're starting to you know, come to fruition a little more now. Like I started playing him. I immediately started playing a lot with Jeff Coffin when I first moved to town, which yeah. has been really awesome. Cool. Yeah. And he, and he's basically like, if he's not on the road with Dave Matthews band, he's putting projects together. Yep. So as you know, we were strangely, I did a lot of playing and hanging with him during the pandemic because he has a nice big open space to play in at his house. And we would just play trio sessions all socially distanced with our masks on, Mm -hmm. you know, all throughout the pandemic, which was really great, you know, emotionally and mentally and musically. Um, And so some stuff has grown out of that and, and things along those lines. But, and uh, he linked me up long before the pandemic with Allison Brown, who's a really great banjo player Mm -hmm. who's based here and she owns Compass Records. So there, there has been things I'm, I'm making it sound like I, I don't know anybody around town i do have a handful of things going on it's just, sure. it's just been a little slower than i i would have hoped for yeah you know
0: yeah like and did you have um you know as, as far as why you chose um <laughs> nashville you know for the kind of player you are i i think it's only in the last few years or maybe 10 years that that you know players uh like you with your skill set with your aesthetic and and with your background start choosing Nashville um because uh, you know like the the sort of uh, cliche existence in Nashville is either you're on tour with a mainstream country act or you're on lower broadway um or you're doing like demo sessions or whatever probably also for like mainstream country acts um but that's i mean that's really changing i think it's like you know that change is really starting to hit its stride now um so like even six years ago did you look at nashville and kind of see the potential in that scene for a, a player like you who like i i imagine you have little to no interest in playing on lower broadway or doing mainstream country tours i mean well there's two
1: to answer you kind of had two questions there the first question being like did i see the potential i mean definitely i and i I, you know, I've been hearing great things. I've been hearing what the whole else, the whole rest of the world was hearing about Nashville, that it was changing and it was becoming a lot more eclectic and um, still, yes, the country capital of the of Earth, but still lots and lots of new stuff happening and interesting stuff. And my feeling was, <clears throat> you know, yes, I think I bring something I'm not going to say, you know, special and unique, but a little left of center for this town. For sure. Um uh, to the table and hopefully people will come to know me for that and call me for an, as much stuff as possible for me to do that but at the same time to kind of answer your other question uh i like to work you know i'm not a i don't know like I, i'm not like a i'll do anything kind of guy like i want i want it to be great and i want it to be you know worth my time and i want it to be uh, a good experience but I think like my, my biggest uh, filter for saying yes to a gig or no to a gig is like how, you know, like who, who, like, what are the people like who I'll be working with? And Mm -hmm. if the answer to that is like, Oh, they're really good people who take this seriously. And, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not the most interesting or innovative music, but like, it's going to be a good experience. Yeah. You know, is, is really where my head goes. And, you know, I, and it's, I, I'm not, I don't have the kind of personality that would just assume people on lower Broadway wouldn't be cool or, or I, or people on a mainstream country act wouldn't be cool. like, if, those, if people are cool and they are interested in having me play drums, like I'm considering it, like right. that's just like what it is. You know, right. it's not like a, that's, that's my entire filtration system, you know, for deciding to take a gig or not. If it's like, I hear people are sketchy or they're assholes or something like that. And they're super dope you know, amazing creative people, like I'm, it's going to be a hard decision. It's going to be like, I'm going to be hard pressed to say yes. Right, right. You know,
0: I'm in a similar headspace. Um, and in, you know, in addition to the consideration of like, what are these people like, um, for me, like, you know, the, the, the genre doesn't matter. Like the nature of like what the music is doesn't matter as much as like, is it good? Is it a good version of that thing? Is it a high quality version of whatever it is um and if if the answer to that is yes then um you know the the this like i said the specific genre or vibe of the gig of the music um you know I'm, I'm open to whatever but it's interesting you were talking about in new york uh you know as a as a younger drummer and i think we all find ourselves here uh at one point or another where like you're just busy as shit and killing yourself. And <laughs> that, like that in your mind is some version of success. Um, when yeah. really, if you kind of like take a step back and, and look at the trajectory of your career, um, you, you might just be treading water in terms of, um, whether or not you're advancing, um, uh, you know, in terms of the quality of the gigs you're playing or the money you're making or the quality of the people you're playing with. Or just your mental state. Like if you're churning through gigs that don't really matter to you ultimately just to fill the schedule, then you might find yourself burned out and cynical <laughs> before too long.
1: Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail right on the head. And I remember I, I got to do a little playing with Kenny Werner when I was in New York. And oh, wow. He kind of – he he said something so profound and at the time I was kind of like I mean I took it I took what he was saying seriously because he's Kenny Warner but I kind of didn't know what to do with it but he was just kind of like you need to have a plan man and I was like I do have a plan I want to be a busy drummer like I work I get to play some I'm getting play play some gigs with you doesn't that like count for something I don't know I didn't say those words back to him that's kind of the sentiment I responded with and he was like no it doesn't count for anything like He's like, look at Ari, you know, he showed up to New York. He said he, you know, he knew he was, he knew he was going to be doing what he's doing now 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, he's been working towards that. He's had a plan. And I just never, you know, I never really had a plan because I, I kind of liked too much different stuff. And, you know, the idea of like leading, leading my own thing and like taking time away from working with other people was, you know, not something that was like super exciting or interesting to me. I just liked the idea of, playing R&B on a Tuesday and some jazz on a Wednesday and super interesting singer-songwriter stuff on a Thursday and, you know, continue on. And uh, I, I'm not saying I regret not taking his advice more seriously. And I feel like things are coming into a little more focus lately for me, which is great, I guess, better late than never. But uh, but yeah, I, t- I totally hear what you're saying. And I, I think that that was part of what, you know, drove me to leave New York because I felt like I was treading water a bit and it's not a great place to
0: tread water. In.
1: You know, it's pretty, de- it's pretty deep, yeah. pretty deep waters over there. Yeah,
0: for real. And it's, it's amazing how, you know, uh, something that, uh, a mentor, uh, tells us might take like five or 10 years to actually sink in. Um, but it's you know it's it's to their credit, you know, a, a guy like Kenny Warner, or you know when I was in Kansas City, um I was in grad school under uh, Bobby Watson, who ran the jazz department mm. there, and wow he you know he dropped a lot of knowledge every day and and a lot of it is stuff that I'm sort of just coming around to in the last few years, or seeing you know seeing it differently um as an older, hopefully wiser, more mature drummer. <laughs> Right. But like, it's, you know, it's like, like Kenny saw that in you, you know, Bobby would see things that me in me and he would just be like, I'm going to just plant this little seed and it's probably not going to do anything for a while, but maybe he'll get it one day.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And I was just telling somebody, another friend of mine, you know, we were talking about like the value of like how, how to value education, whether it comes in the form of lessons or a degree or like, how do you put, you know, a dollar amount on those things and what how to measure it for yourself as a student? How to measure it yourself as a teacher? And I and I, you know, they it was a friend of mine asking me my advice. Because I I teach a lot, and I also try to learn a lot. I'm also always just tracking down information for the for the stuff I'm interested in in my life. And and I said, you know, at this point in my life in my career, if I if I if I spend you know a few hundred dollars on something, whether it's a lesson or a program or a course or something, and I get one or two like little valuable bits like that's worth it yep you know what i mean like i took two crazy lessons with bob moses when i lived in boston wow and it was like like cumulatively six of the weirdest hours of my life (laughs) And, but I I don't remember a lot of it because it was just like a very strange, like, he was kind of all over the place. And he's, you know, like, that's not a surprise to anybody. I don't feel feel like I'm like talking negatively about him. He's a very unique character. Yeah. And, uh, but I got, there was like two or three, like, kind of like sentences that just kind of fell out at certain points that really, it's not so much that they were the only two or three valuable things that he said, they were the two or three things that imprinted in my mind that obviously I needed to hear in that moment that was, you know, was just as much on me as it is on him, probably more so on me. And, you know, as strange as those, those hours were, and I don't remember what he charged me. I don't think it was like, I don't think it was overtly expensive, but whatever it was, I was like, man, that those two or three things made it all worth it. Yeah. You know, but you kind of got to, you know, whether it's a private lesson or a you know, a series of YouTube videos or a course that you're paying for, you kind of got to dig through and find, find the little gems. And that's what makes it valuable.
0: Yeah. And I think the, the further down your path you get, um, you know, at, at a certain point you're, you're not looking for, um, a, a lesson or a program or anything to like change your life and completely, you know, turn your playing upside down or like you're, you're looking for it to kind of just keep you on that path. You know, at the end of that path is your goal, um, in terms of just the overall picture of what you want your career to look like and how you want to think about music. And you're totally right. Like if you can get just like one or two things that just kind of reinforce that or sort of, you know, do a little course correction to keep you on the path that you want to be on, then those are, those are totally worth it. In terms of like having a plan, um, like coming out of the pandemic, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. we're coming out, I don't know. But, um, you know... Do you do you have kind of a specific plan as far as your your Nashville existence? Do you have specific goals? Uh,
1: I do and I don't. I feel like I, I've got some seeds planted that I'm kind of you know hoping will grow in the right direction, and I'm you know trying to take care of those as best I can. I'm also. I, I got remarried recently and I have two stepkids, oh, cool. which is you know, it's a huge part of my life yeah. and the, the fa- my, my family and home dynamic has changed a lot and for all for, you know, incredibly amazing directions and I'm very thankful for them, but that's something I'm, I'm heavily focused on right now too. So uh, <clears throat> as far as a plan, like, yes, I do have kind of like goals and things in mind, but I, I, I'm not quite, I think also because of the state of the world, I'm not quite ready to like just go pound the pavement you know, super hardcore about it quite yet. Yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah. And is your is your goal uh, like I'm asking this because I'm in kind of a similar place. It's is your goal just kind of abstract, like there isn't a specific gig that you're after or like a specific um I don't know, uh uh tax bracket or whatever. (laughs) I'm I'm just thinking I'm I'm thinking sort of abstractly about um how I want my days and weeks to feel in terms of mm. my, my musical career. And it's not that they're bad now, um, but, you know, there are things I want to de-emphasize and things I want to emphasize more in the future. So are, are you in a similar place? It's just kind of this abstract, like, less of this kind of thing, more of that kind of thing? Uh,
1: yeah, I'd say so. Uh, I'm I'm thankfully in a place I kind of similar to... The change of the change in dynamic from the new york treading water life uh for a host of reasons I'm, I'm kind of in the first first time in my life in a position just to say no on principle to things yeah. you know which I like was like people would talk about that you know when I was younger and it was just such a weird concept both because like how could you say no if you're available and 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 why would you say no you know like I like I and mean, now you know as you get older you learn plenty of reasons to answer both of those questions. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> and so I have been, you know, I've, I've tried, I'm trying to cater my time to stuff I, I want to be doing and stuff. I want to, you know, stuff I want to be doing, and been playing, playing the drums and playing percussion the way I want to be doing it, as opposed to like swinging in the dark in situations where, you know, like maybe they want this and maybe they want that. It's like, I think I should just, you know, be as try to put myself in situations where my instincts are doing most of the work. And, you know, if if someone needs to say, Hey, can you do X instead of Y? It's just a small adjustment to what my instincts were telling me to do in the first place, as opposed to, you know, trying to construct this kind of whole other approach every single, every single time. Right. Um, And yeah. And thankfully that doesn't involve me saying no to a lot of stuff, which means I'm already doing a lot of things that fit that, Description, which I'm very thankful for. Yeah, But I think, you know, trying to be a little more intentional and a little more thoughtful about uh, what it is, not so much like what I'm saying yes and no to, but like why I'm saying yes and no to certain things and like what that way of playing the drums or what pl- way of playing that kind of music, what that makes me feel and what that does for me. You know, musically and, you know, mentally and emotionally. Yeah. Uh, man. letting that be the driving force.
0: You're man, you're, you're preaching to me right now. I love hearing this, uh, cause I'm, I'm in a very similar spot and, you know, I, just as you did, I will, um, sort of stipulate that I'm in a fortunate position to be able to say no to some stuff. I don't have to say yes to everything. And, um, you know, I, I fully recognize that a lot of musicians are just in a financial position where they have to say yes to pretty much everything and go make that money. Um, but if you're able to just be a little more intentional and and kind of curate your, your schedule a little bit more, then um, th- like there might not be as many gigs, but everything you do will feel like movement in the same direction. Even if those genres are different, those bands are different, like, you know, totally different projects. If, you know, if you're thoughtful about why you're saying yes to stuff, then it'll start to, um, connect from, from gig to gig, from performance to performance, from project to project instead of like, if you're saying yes to everything, it just feels like you're just kind of doing single punches in all directions with no momentum, in any direction, right? You're just working. This gig, that gig, get that one done, survive that one, learn that set list. Like it just, it, there's no forward um, continuity to any of it. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad I, I needed somebody to say that to me because <laughs> you kind of, you, you crystallize like what what I've been uh, uh, thinking about a lot lately. Um, so yeah, good, good luck with your... <laughs> <laughs> Good <laughs> you, luck with you as your, well. your abstract forward continuity. <laughs> what were the main takeaways uh, from your time in New York? Like how long did you spend there?
1: I was there for 12 years. I moved there the month after the month after I graduated Berkeley to right into my mid thirties. That's a good uh, long stretch. Yeah. Spent three years in Queens in a neighborhood called Astoria and then nine years in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. And my main takeaways. I mean, I am super thankful for the time I spent there. I think like, the people that like people that like to play with me and the people that like me as a person, like, I think they like me because of the time I spent there, Mm -hmm. you know, like I think I'm, I think I'm generally a nice person, but I'm very impatient when it comes to little bullshit. (laughs) And I feel like the Nashville and Southern way is to give all the time in the world for little bullshit. Yes. And I, I tried, I tried it when I first moved to town and it was so, uh, you know, not authentic and it, for me and it was so difficult and I, f- I gave up right away. And I was like, I'm just going to be who I'm, who I am. And that's just like what the deal is. And, I, and I'm not saying New York made me that way. I'm from the Northeast, you know, my whole life up until I moved here. Right. So it's not just the 12 years in New York. It's the 35 years till I moved here, right. you know? Right. And uh, so I think like, it you know take it you know like it or not it made me who i am and i think whoever that is whatever those things are that make me up is valuable to not only the musicians in my world in my in my sphere but like the humans in my sphere Mm -hmm. you know like the my lack of patience for those little bullshits are things that like people turn to me to like to like zap out of our world when it comes time to like some for when the need to zap it. They're like, Hey, can you zap this really quick? Cause I, I, it's not, I don't have it in me to do it. I'm like, get the hell out of my way. I'll zap that right out of the way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like kind of become that. And I think, and I, that's fine. Um, I'm really painting myself as this total prick. I, I maybe I am, but, uh,
0: <clears throat> I, uh, no, you, you said it, it's, it's East coast versus Southeast. Like, that's, or, you know, the South in general, it's, it's two very different, um, you know, approaches just to life in general. Um, but that doesn't mean that, uh, you, you can't be valuable in the South and, and valued in the South. Um, like, did you, it sounds like you kind of, you know, you, you said you kind of gave up early on, on, you know, just trying to be something you're not. Um, did you, uh, did you just kind of come to grips with the fact that you're you're not going to be everything to everyone and you should lean into who you are because certain people will value that and other people who don't value that are you know uh not going to be people that you play with you're not going to bend yourself to that
1: well i feel like the last like the last 30 seconds of what you just spoke is like what every therapist in my life has tried to get me to understand. (laughs) And I've maybe started to understand it in the last few years, but that's for another discussion. Right. Um, Yeah, basically. And I think also it was like, I I had to trust myself that who I was as a person and as a drummer would be valuable without my needing to re-sculpt or paint paint something different for that day or for that gig or for that person into into my picture or, you know, whatever, analogy you want to make. Um, It's like, however, however, this character exists in space and time that character being me and however that character plays the drums. I like, I have to trust that guy, you know, is formed and ready Hmm. to do whatever it is people will ask him to do. And instead of like having to keep like, you know, the, like the nervous troll on my shoulder going like, well, maybe they don't want you to say that, or maybe they don't want you to play that way. It's like, man, fuck it. Like, I'm just like, whatever I'm going to like say, you know, I'm not saying, uh, it's not okay to evolve either. The world is changing very fast in in some great and amazing ways. Sure. So, you know, stuff, you know, any one of us would have said not even 10 years ago, two years ago, you know, it's not cool to say now. And I think, I'm on the, on the side, I'm in the camp that is in agreement with a lot of those changes. So I'm not saying don't evolve. I'm not saying be stubborn and, you know, don't change who you are to, you know, to keep evolving, but like, you know, change, you know, but, but like make it a genuine intention, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, don't just do it because maybe it'll get you some better paying Mm -hmm. gigs or maybe it'll get you a more attractive partner or something like that. Just like be who you are. Yeah. You know,
0: We've talked about this before, like kind of in the context of an audition, but, but you're, you're going wider with it. If, if you, um, sort of like tie yourself into knots to, to be something that you think somebody else wants, um, you, you might gain favor with them. You might get that gig, but you're you're getting it based on uh, like a, an incomplete or not completely truthful version of yourself um, And it's not that you have to just like show everything warts and all like in every interaction. it's it's not about that. it's just about like it's so interesting you use the word trust in with yourself because you know we've talked about, being secure or like knowing your own identity or just kind of knowing yourself but i i think you're the maybe the first person i've heard in this context talk to, talk about just trusting yourself trusting your instincts and just trusting that the person you really are the drummer you really are um you know can do whatever the situation calls for without having to you know tie yourself in knots like i said
1: yeah. I mean, on a much more micro example of all of that is like, I, I have a lot of students come to me and they, they're, they you know, they, they'll hear me play with Becca Stevens or any number of different folks. And I, I will often put one of my drumsticks down and pick up a shaker and then put the other drumstick down and pick up a brush or a weird plastic thing or something else completely and start making some different sounds. And t- to me, it really is genuinely me just doing what I would do with sticks holding other things, which sounds very caveman, but it is kind of a caveman philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I've refined some of the technique over the years, but like the, the seed of the idea is very caveman. And students will come and be like, well, where did you, where did you like, you know, learn to do that or something like that. i am like, I'll just like take one of their sticks away from them to hand them a shaker. I'm like, play me any groove. Just like do it, (laughs) you know, like, well, I don't know how. I was like, you know, do you know how to play a shaker? Do you know how to play any groove? Just do it like where it's only the two of us sitting here right now. It's okay if it sucks. It's okay if it's cool, if it's amazing. But like you have to trust that you're maybe you're not going to knock it out of the park every time, but that it's going to be serviceable and you'll get better at it, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think like that, you know, I know like this is a very, very micro example, but like the idea that again, my instincts will carry me through this, even if my execution isn't perfect. Like the things, my ears and my, you know, whatever we want to call it, your heart or your soul or whatever it is, are going to tell my limbs to do will be musically appropriate. Maybe I won't nail it. Maybe it could be done better. You know, maybe Matt Chamberlain would do it better than I would. (laughs) But it's not going to be this thing where people are going to turn around and look at you like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you know, (laughs) you... Do you even know where one is? Like, is you don't? You know, it's not going to sound like that. It's going to sound like music, and you you'll it'll keep getting better. But you have to trust that it will sound like
0: music on this first try. Right, right. So, and that's that's so interesting talking about execution versus instinct, and in terms of what other musicians value about you, um, I think uh, you know we we get very heady about execution, um, uh, not just in terms of like you know chops or the, the drumminess of it all, but in terms of tone and, uh, time and just all those execution sort of, uh, things. And those are important, but, um, you're talking about, uh, you know, a producer or a songwriter or a band leader, um, also valuing your instincts and what you want to do with music and how music moves through your head and how that comes out of you, even if how it comes out of you is not, you know, uh, (laughs) perfectly executed. Um, the instinct, the intent there is what they value.
1: Totally. And I think that's, even if, you know, I feel, I feel like that, you know, even if it's if we're going to look at this in two very like binary scenarios where it's like, you're either we've, you know, we've called, you know, drummer a because he's we need the drummer a vibe and we need a thing that that guy does or we've called drummer b because she was the only one available and we need to get a drummer just to do this Mm -hmm. like either either way even though in our minds a should be going with their instincts and, and b should be you know just trying to hit the target and like make everybody happy and really, I think the reality is regardless of the situation, regardless of who you are in the context of the scenario, it's still about your instincts and, and bringing something good to the situation. And, you know, of course, if it's some very, very specific genre or style or sound, and you are just the furthest person, you know, on earth to execute that, then you're in a little bit of a pickle and you need to figure something out. Right. But if we're, if, if we're working within... You know, if you're somewhere within the center of the Venn diagram of like one circle is the styles that I know really well, and one circle is the styles I really don't, and you're somewhere in that in the middle there, just just trust your instincts and hope that people will give you the right feedback to help get it into focus.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. This reminds me of a, a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with uh, Blair Sinta. And, um, we were talking about, uh, just, you know, his whole remote recording thing and and the idea of, um, just recording in general, recording for a track. Um, and he kind of, he kind of divided his jobs up into, um, those that require kind of a, a specific set of drum parts and drum sounds and those that require a drum performance Um, kind of, you know, and, and that's another way of sort of dividing up, like one of them is execution and the other one is instinct. Um, and, uh, is, is that, is that something that you're conscious of, especially in the studio?
1: Yes. Uh, and it's, I love the way that Blair kind of divides it up because it's way healthier than how I think about it in my head currently. And I'm going to start retraining. (laughs) The way I think about it, because the way I, I the way I tend to think about it, which is, like I said, not healthy, is like I tend to put some, put some extra pressure on myself to like not personalize parts, but to humanize parts, because my feeling has been they obviously are calling a real drummer to lay down a real drum track because they don't want to use whatever's popular in Splice right now. Right. Or they don't want to use Apple Apple loops or they don't want to use whatever that you know they could use. And I appreciate that. And I think the reality is it's not. Again, as it's not as black and white, and I think I get I get down on the music world and how awesome <laughs> sounding not real drums are now, mm-hmm. and you know. But at the end of the day, a human stamp is a human stamp, whether it could be easily copied by a computer or not. Right. So, uh, kind of going back to the way Blair thinks about it, like whether it's you know, it's not so much that it needs to. You know, be uh, un—what's what I'm looking for—unrepeatable by AI, right? And it needs to be this like massively human, always changing part. It just needs to sound good and serve the song, and serve you know, and make the producer, the artist, whoever it is, like it needs it needs to fill whatever cup they're looking to have filled for that project, right? And they obviously came to you because they want your instincts, not what's ever in their hard drive already.
0: Right, right. I, you know, you and I both come from jazz backgrounds and I, I struggle with that same thing you talked about, about like, you know, putting pressure on myself to come up with something amazing and unique. Um, you know, that that's the performance side. Like <laughs> I, I put too right. much pressure on myself to come up with a unique performance for a track when in fact... Um, you know, hewing more towards the the execution side and just laying down a set of tones and a set of drum parts, um, you know, is is liberating in a way, right? It kind of it kind of frees you up um, from um, the I, I don't know. It, it, it just seems like a more relaxed way to make music. Sometimes, like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just gotta <laughs> put down a drum part.
1: Right. Well, it's, it kind of comes down to. You, you you kind of like, and I, I kind of heard Aaron Sterling kind of voice similar approaches where it's like, he's kind of playing producer. It's like, I'm just working for the song. I'm not working for this artist or this producer. I'm working for the song. Hmm. And what does the song really need? Which, which really, that removes everything. That removes the consideration of like, does it need a performance? Does it need great sounds? Does it need something that kind of sounds like the radio? Or does it need something that it sounds like radio from 30 years ago? you know, it just, it doesn't, none of that means anything until you strip it all when you strip it all away. And you're just like, what does the song want from me right now? Like what, what can I do to make this song the best it's going to be, you know? And, you know, like, I don't know, maybe it's because I, I, you know, over the last few years now have children in my life, but it's like sort of similar. It's like, it's like, how do I serve this kid? Like, I don't need to like overpower them with like advice and, you know, activities and, all the most perfect nutritious food in the world that they don't want to eat. Like they just need the occasional, like just like use my instincts to make really good decisions to like, if they do need advice or they need nudging in one direction, or they need, you know, maybe they do need a a chili dog. And that's just the way this afternoon is going to (laughs) go, you know, like, you know, just kind of serving, serving the situation as best you can using this is, this is the, the theme of our, of our discussion, but using those instincts and you know who you are, as genuinely as possible, whether it's something super pop and there will be no drum fills and it could easily be programmed, but better yet, it'll sound like you not playing fills, right. You know, right. Versus (laughs) versus some dope, some dope drummery track that of course no one would ever program that it needs to be a human being.
0: Right. Right. And even, uh, you know, in that, in that super pop track with no fills or whatever, I I've found that, um, You can, you can find a little moment if it's, even if it's just like one little thing throughout the course of the song, um, that, that, you know, that you heard when you were kind of learning the song or that you just like thought to do in the moment. Um, it could be like one open hi hat or you know, just something that you can kind of hang your hat on and say, I did that. That wasn't a computer. That was me. That was my choice. That's my little stamp. Like, you know, even if the producer or the songwriter doesn't like recognize it and say, I love what you did there. Right. Just in your own right. mind. It's like, I I put, I put a little tiny stamp of myself on that little thing instead of like stomping on the whole song with my identity. <laughs> totally.
1: No, I, t- I totally hear you. and I, I do. I do a lot of, I, I tend to find similar small moments like that, usually in the form of yes, an open hi-hat here and there super does the trick, but also like Leaving out one backbeat at the end of a phrase, mm-hmm. like mid verse or something, you yeah. know, is also a nice way to kind of give some air. and you know like not, not so much that a computer wouldn't have done it, but a producer programming drums probably wouldn't have done it. And I feel like that's a really valuable way to bring your not just your human element, but your your how my in my in my case, my thirty years of drumming to that to that song. yeah, you know, is this the decision not to play one snare drum in one in one of the bars for one beat and yeah. like can really like kind of like change the shape of at least the that whole section if not the whole song That a non-drumming producer probably wouldn't have thought of
0: yeah especially in the last few years since i've been recording songs uh in here i've I've really started to see the value in taking something out <laughs> mm. rather than adding something. And it, like you're talking about it in terms of just that one little moment, that sort of improvisational or or spur of the moment choice where, you know, uh, so often we look for a little improvisational spur of the moment thing to be something extra. But the fact that it can be something taken away um, mm. makes for really cool moments. Agreed have you live. I don't listen to the radio I ain't watching any TV I don't listen to
1: those CDs or MP3s I don't watch a lot of movies I just need to have you love.
0: Talk about your teaching life because on, on your website, you've got this um, sort of uh, – you, you you refer to it as coaching, not teaching. Um, and you talk about uh, progressions in terms of how you teach and, and how drummers can sort of move through things. Um, so h- like how long have you been taking this approach and and um, what does that look like exactly?
1: Um, yeah, so I, I, I think this is kind of – Almost always been my approach. It just didn't really come into focus into the last like 10 years or so. But um it's not terribly different than like what all of us think of when we think of the lessons that we took or that we that we give or that we do take. Uh where you know, but in my case, I don't really have the capacity schedule-wise to meet with somebody every single week at the exact same time. And that's even if we live in the same city and I I have a lot of remote students. Um, So the way it works is I give you something to practice. Well, first, of course, we discuss your goals and the things that you're looking to get out of lessons and what you're trying to accomplish. I craft a lesson for you. I, you know, I share it with you and then I include any videos to help. Uh, explain the exercises or the way I need you to hold your hands or, you know, the hold the sticks for that particular exercise or what we're doing. And then when it's time for, you know, what would be your lesson, you put together a video of you doing those things. You'll share it with me. I go through it, craft your next lesson. So and so on and so forth. Okay. So uh, this is, is
0: it's, it's kind of a back and forth between you and a student instead of the the two of you meeting at an appointed time uh, and spending an hour. Right. It's,
1: it's uh, to use a very corporate and, and zoom era, uh, term it's, 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 it's lessons, async. it's asynchronous <laughs> lessons, you know?
0: <laughs> oh Lord. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and so, and I, I stole that model from a, a personal trainer that I, I worked with for a short while, years and years ago, someone I followed I was like on his email list and followed him on social media. We didn't live in the same city, but he had a lot of really interesting approaches to fitness and and movement. And so I, and he, he offered this, you know, kind of remote personal training uh, model like that. And so uh, it didn't really work well for me not to, you know, it, he wasn't that on top of it. So I was like, well, I was like, well, this was not a great experience, but I'm really inspired by this model. And that's when I started to implement that. Into and like kind of start advertising for the remote lessons and remote coaching, and the reason I, I say coach is just because like I don't know like lessons lessons feels a little more like to every Tuesday at three thirty you're gonna come to this room and we're gonna and I'm gonna sit across from you on my pad and you're gonna sit at your pad and we're gonna go through these books which is great and I, and I, I if I had the capacity to be doing that I would do that but I don't right now so I'd rather take the approach of like I will coach you through These groups of things you will practice when you're ready for me to do it. And I will curate the things that you will practice, you know, when you are ready to have new things to practice. That was very, very uneloquent. I'm sorry to put it so <laughs> no, no, no. so poorly. That's that's exactly what it is. I, I could have chosen like every every syllable of that could have been way more hip, you, but it wasn't.
0: You want you want to try a take um, two? We'll we'll edit it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, it's okay. That's okay. Let's let's just all first takes here, and um, and and that and it works really great. It, it works, you know. It's. Uh, not to, not to be too, gen, you know, gen, you know paint too much with a broad brush, but some older students are, are not so into the idea of it. Cause it's a little too much technology and a little too much like putting together their YouTube video for me. And it's always unlisted. It's not like they have to advertise it to the world, but you know, it's just like, they just rather meet on Skype or on zoom. And I'm like, we can do that. But like drum lessons on zoom kind of blow because, you know, it's like the audio is constantly recompressing itself and you know, it, it, it mistakes the metronome for some weird sound. It doesn't want to take in. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's it's not built for that. And that's fine. But uh, I've had a lot of other students who, like, really double down and really focus and just take the information to heart. And, like, the, you know, growth is 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 marked, you know. Yeah. So, um, but I guess, you know, it goes, it goes with anything. You go to try to learn anything. You're going to put the time in, whether it's on Zoom or Async or, or in person, you know, it's like whether you put the time in or not is going to be the, the the differentiating factor.
0: Right, right. Um. So, like, how many? You know, in a in a given um. You know, week or month. Um. How many students do you kind of do you have on the roster? Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it really varies because my all the in person teaching I do in Nashville is, it's mostly you know folks that are. It's either like kind of other kind of like working professionals who want to kind of to fine tune something or learn some new skills or broaden some broaden some some other other areas of their are playing uh or it's like kind of older no like like I, I have one like the only student i've had who's been very consistent is is, is really just one kid and he's, he's about to graduate high school and he's been studying with me all throughout high school mm-hmm. and uh and but even with him, it's been, you know, I like at the end of the lesson, I say, when do you want to come back? And usually people will say, like, uh, let me get through this stuff and then I'll call you. Right. You know, and that's that that works the best, I think, in general. But I I don't, you know, set weekly or even bi-weekly lessons with people. And so because of that, it's very up and down. So I could easily teach like, you know, five in-person lessons in a week and have, you know, four or five online async check-ins to, to turn around. Yeah. And I, and then I'm, and that, but then I could also have months where I only do one or two of each. Right. You know?
0: Right. I, so, I, and I, that's okay. I really like the idea of, of, um, you know, both you and the student, um, kind of getting to this when you can, um, you know, as your schedule dictates. And I, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you hold yourself accountable to, turn things around in pretty quick fashion. <laughs> uh, it's, I try to, yeah. I try to, I don't always nail it. And some students have,
1: you know, that they're, they're, they're patient and I appreciate that. Right. But uh, I try to, I try to like, you know, treat it like it's a contract and, you know, like they're the ones paying. So I, the way I view it is like, I owe them something. They don't owe me their check-in. Mm-hmm. I owe them, I owe them my, my feedback. Right. You know, so whenever they get to their check-in, my feedback, the, the clock starts ticking for my feedback. The clock is never ticking for their check-in.
0: Absolutely. It's like doing a remote recording. Like they have hired you to return a thing to them. So <laughs> that, right. that gets to the the top of the heap there. Um, exactly. There are three tiers of this on your website, right? It's kind of, is it a, mm-hmm. is it a per lesson thing? Like every time you turn something around, th- like that's your fee or is it more of a subscription
1: it's more of a, subs- it's all subscription. Oh, so, okay. uh, yeah. And, and which le- whichever level you choose is the amount of check-ins you get per month. Okay. So there's a, a weekly, a bi-weekly and a monthly.
0: Hmm. Cool. Um, yeah.
1: Bi-weekly meaning every other week. Sometimes that, sometimes that means twice a week to certain people, but right, weekly, every other week and monthly.
0: But there's bi-weekly or semi-weekly. I think semi is like twice per week or, you know, semi-annually right. would be twice per year. I get them mixed up. Um, yeah, yeah, me too. That's I why think... I felt the need to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you started sort of doing this, did you, did you, um, like advertise or market this in any way? Like how did you kind of get this teaching business model on its feet and and off the ground?
1: I haven't marketed it at all other than occasionally mentioning it on Instagram. And, And honestly, it usually ends up being, you know, it's something that kind of comes and goes for certain people. Like I'll have people subscribe and they'll hang on for, you know, anywhere from like a few months to, you know, maybe a year and then they'll quit and they'll take some time off and maybe they'll come back. And I don't want it to, I don't want it to be the planet fitness membership. That's so cheap. People forget they have it. Right. You know, I want it to be the thing that like, if you're going to do this, let's focus on this. And, you know, like I'm not, I'm not a cheap teacher and I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really, I'm not super interested in like volume of students, I'm interested in serious students, yeah. so I'd rather charge a little more so it's exactly worth what I what my time is to me in that context, and it only attracts the people who understand that value, and I totally get that there are people that understand that value that can't afford that price tag, and I'm totally sympathetic to that, and in some cases, I've been able to like figure something out with them, um, but... You know, I've, I've had people reach out to me and like they ask about pricing and they're like, well, why would I do that if I can just go to Drumeo? And I'm like, dude, go to Drumeo. That's like, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it will serve you exactly as you need it. Like, I'm not saying I'm better than what Drumeo does. It's just a different product and it's a different, coming from a different place. And like, and whatever Drumeo charges to cover their their bottom line, I'm charging to cover my bottom line. And it's not supposed to, it's not meant to be apples to apples you know right. it's like it's like some people want apples some people want oranges like that's just the way it is right. for me that's how i think about it
0: yeah so. and not unlike um you know remote recording especially uh when it comes to a platform like air gigs or sound better um you know you'll you'll see uh you'll see price points just all over the road right like some mm-hmm. some people are doing a volume business and and others are charging a premium um and uh, we we did uh, we interviewed uh, David Blacker, who's like the, the CEO of AirGigs, and he mentioned that you know like you're you're welcome to charge whatever you want, but a a lower fee tends to attract. Uh, I don't, he, he put it very diplomatically, more diplomatically than I'm about to, but he, you know, a lower fee tends to attract lower quality projects. <laughs> yeah. Um, and totally. you're, you're talking about the exact same thing, like a low subscription fee for you would probably attract a lot of students who aren't as serious about it as you need them to be for it to be worth your time. Totally.
1: And one thing I learned a long time ago for myself that I try to preach to my students, very simply, if you can't afford to do a gig because it doesn't pay well enough, or the the, 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 the details surrounding the gig are so try, are so taxing to you that you will literally not be able to afford to do the gig, but you say yes, then it's on you. Yeah, like it's 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 your responsibility to like do the math and like you know uh, audit what you know about the situation and. Say no if 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 you if you're in the red right. by the time you're done doing the audit, and I kind I feel the same way about you know whether it's remote recording or it's teaching or something like that. It's like it's just not good. And it, like if I can't if I can't afford to do it and it ends up not being worth my time, I'm going to perform poorly because I'm yep. going to be annoyed about it. Yep. You know, and I've just done that enough times. We all have. We're just like I don't want to feel that way. I don't want to output that kind of poor quality into the world, whether it's recordings or teaching or whatever it is. And, um, yeah, I mean, when it comes to remote recording, my, my philosophy is you have to, you have to really figure out what your range that you're comfortable charging is, you know, for, for any session. And if your if your thing is like, I need between 300 and 500 track, like that's, that's my range. And for remote recording, and I'm talking about all recording, not just remote recording. Yeah. Then I would I would recommend somebody just charge the 300 because when you're doing it remote, you're probably doing it on your own time. You probably have a little more flexibility. You know, you have a little more control over what's happening. So charge on the lower end. But don't charge a penny below your scale, like your range. Because right. then all of a sudden you're getting into that, like, you're activating that part of your, your, you know, for me, I'm activating that part of my personality that's going to get annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's on
0: me. And that's totally. on me. Like, if, totally. you know, I, I forgot who said it recently, but somebody, uh, it, like, in terms of what you're going to charge for a session or a gig, or like, if it's up to you to name your price, uh, y- you have to come up with a number that is going to make you happy to do the gig totally whatever the totally. gig is because if 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 you're happy to do the gig you're going to show up you're going to do good work you're going to give a shit but if if it's below that number uh then you're you know like like you just said i am not going to bring myself i'm not going to bring my best self to that gig right and like you said that's on me that's my problem that's not their problem but i have to right. like put that governor on myself yeah
1: it's funny, I was, I was uh, just reminded of a, of a lesson I was taught in high school of, of all times in my life, which couldn't at all imagine the scenarios where this would be relevant at the time when I was 17. But now that I'm 40, I know it all too well. But uh, this guy that I was working with back then said, you know, he was like, if someone asks you to do something that you really don't want to do, you know, figure out what your normal price would be for it and times it by five. So, like, that way, if they say yes, you're getting paid five times what you thought you would. And if they say no, you're not that bummed about it. Because you don't want to do it anyway. <laughs> and, and so I was, I was on which, you know, it feels, feels cartoonish, but then you think about a situation that I was in two weeks ago where I was on a gig and we just finished. And it was like the classic situation where the whole crowd was wasted and we just played two super long sets. And we were like, we were satisfied with our work and we were done. And we finished our last song and the crowd was acting like we had just started and, you know, started, you know, chanting for more. And there was no more. That was not, it was not a situation where there would be more. And, uh, and this guy with like a, with a, with a hundred dollar bill in one hand and a wad of cash in his other hand walks up to the saxophone player and he's just, and he just says saxophone solo hundred dollars. And the saxophonist is this really sweet kind of, you know, mellow, you know like non-confrontational dude who's a very close friend of mine and he and he'd already started packing his horn up and I could see he was like kind of half considering it and the other half of him was like how do I get out of this situation right you know and he was like uh I don't know sir I don't know if I'm allowed to he was kind of trying to play the like you know the gig's done and I don't know if we're allowed to have more music now or something like that and I just I just quit packing my stuff and I walked over and said he'll do it for $500 (laughs) And the guy was like, "I just want a saxophone solo." I was like, "You don't think he's worth five hundred dollars? Like, that's how disrespectful could you be?" I just kind of, I kind of got that. Here's the East Coaster in me coming out, right? But like, you know, but I was. It was partially me protecting my buddy. Who and I make it sound like he needed. He didn't need protecting, but I got a little protective in that moment. He yeah. didn't need my help, but yeah. you know, I, I. And it was also partially me being really fucking done with this guy and this and this gig and everything up until that moment was fine. Right. But like this, the disrespect that was like, this guy was fire breathing onto the stage. I just couldn't deal with it in that moment. And, and it, that ended up derailing the whole thing, which I kind of wanted my buddy to make 500 bucks. And I was going to encourage it. I was going to encourage like, he's like, he didn't specify how long. So take the money first and play for as short as you think you should. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but it was, but he, and he's like, he's like, how did you come up with 500? I was like, well, he was offering you one. And if there's ever anything you don't really want to do, times it by five. You know, just so use my old buddy Dwayne's suggestion to me from you know 25 years ago. God, that's great. And, uh, and it derailed the whole thing. So you know, that was like one of the one of the
0: optimal outcomes of the scenario right right and that guy fucked up because in like you said in one hand he's got a hundred bucks and in the in the other hand he's got the rest of his money oh yeah <laughs> so you saw and like,
1: <laughs> i and I, I come from a family of hagglers like i used to go to fle- <laughs> i used to go to flea markets with my mom and she would like we'd be walking in and she'd be taking off her jewelry and like putting it in her purse you know, because she was planning on haggling over things that didn't want to, like, show her cards, you know. <laughs> so I, I, was, I, I was taught by the best both to, like, you know, how to do it and how to, like, look for the signs. So, yeah, yeah he had no, he had no idea what he was doing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. I love that. And, it, you know, whether it's a situation like that or, um, you know, whether or not you're going to say yes to a gig, you know, going back to our earlier conv- conversation, it feels so good to just say no to stuff that you're not into. Like if you don't have to do it, if you don't need that money, if you ignore the instinct of like, well, fill the schedule up, go do the gig, you're free. Like if you just say no to right. some shit that you know you're not going to be into, man, that th- that that feeling is as good as making money. <laughs> Cuz like you've just you've made time now right? Mm-hmm. Um, Which is the one thing you can't replicate and make it more of. So, yeah. So like, maybe I'll fill that time with a gig that I'm going to love. Maybe I'll smoke a cigar on the porch, but I'm not doing that gig.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Back in, in my New York days, I used to work with this really great tuba player and he, he had a, a salary job as the musical director and choir director for a church, like a very, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, what do you call them? Uh, now I'm showing my real non Southerness about me, like a, a mega, there's no mega, there's no mega churches in New York, but this was some church in the Bronx that had enough cash flow to have a salaried musical director that would, and like pay him health give him health insurance and things like that. Right. So, you know, he had very, very busy Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays, you know, whatever, you know, with like choir rehearsals and actual services and things like that. So we were on our way to a gig together. I was driving, he was the passenger seat, and he gets a call, and all I hear is his side of the conversation. You know, he it wasn't on speakerphone, and all I hear is "Hello, yes, this is he." What's the date? Hang on, let me check. He looks, pulls, puts his phone down. He's checking it. He's looking at his iCal. Goes back. He's like, "How much does it pay?" I'm sorry, I'm not available. Goodbye, and hangs up the phone. Wow. And I was just like, "What just happened?" <laughs> I was like, "It was like it was mind blowing." He <laughs> was like, "It was," a, and he just said very matter of factly, "He was like, it's a, it was a Saturday night gig and." my Sundays are crucial that I'm on my a game. So if I'm going to, if I'm, it's not that I say no to every Saturday night gig, he's like, but it's gotta be great. It's gotta be really worth, you know, being really tired all day Sunday and yeah. not being super sharp. He's like, and this wasn't that. So I just said, no. Yeah. And I was, he's like, I was, I was free, but you know, it just wasn't worth it.
0: Yeah. And I was like, Whoa, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's, that's the, I'm man. I am coming out of this interview in, in that headspace. I love it. Nice. I love it. Nice. Uh, man, thanks so much for doing this. It was, it was great to finally connect with you for real because like I said, I've, I've been aware of you for so long. Uh, and then you just, you, you popped up in Nashville at the underdog with Ty. I was like, shit, there he is. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, man. Well, thanks for having me. I love this podcast. So it's, it's an honor to get to be on it. So I appreciate you having me. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Great having you. Thanks, dude. There you go. Hell of a drummer, thoughtful dude, Jordan Pearlson. That was really fun. I hope you dug that. At the top of the show, I mentioned how he's an example of the different kind of drummer that Nashville has been attracting, and next week, Matt Krause will be talking with Nate Felty, who I think definitely fits that category as well. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.